This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the Acid Capitalist Podcast. Yes, your ears do not deceive you and neither do your eyes. I have returned. If anyone has just joined us over the last few weeks and wonders, who the hell is this guy? No, I'm not Hugh Hendry. My name is Chris Sweeney, also known as The Alchemist. And Hugh has been on a world tour and basically left me behind, just sort of minding my own business in London town, bored, alone, no friends. I'm calling him. He doesn't answer. He's just been regaling us with tales, with hanging out with supermodels. I kid you not. Anyway, I will bring him in. Mr. Hugh Hendry, the acid capitalist. How are you today? Chris, heaven's blowing a gale here. Um, I, I'm protecting you. I mean, the place is the, the, the dens of iniquity that I have to go. The things that happen between midnight and four in the morning. I'm protecting you. Clearly, I mean, I am the barrier to your sanity. Well, he also he also mentioned rock stars, people, and an extremely well known supermodel. But I will. What we'll do is we'll wait maybe till another episode, and I will I will I will extract his personal stuff for this world tour because there's a lot of juice there. I see the questions you ask him. It's all economic stuff, but we want to know what happened backstage at Bloomberg and who he was hanging out with and what he did and all that stuff. But we will get to that. But more importantly, today we have a wonderful guest with us. His name is Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy CIO at Double Line Capital. And this is a mashup podcast. He's going to be putting this out on his platform, The Sherman Show. So, Jeffrey, welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your platform with us. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to the remix. We'll see what we can do with it. Exactly. And you're out in uh, Santa Barbara. So tell us a lot about yourself, your, your, your job at the moment, what you do. So, you know, give us the give us a broad stroke so anyone doesn't know you. Yeah, no, I'm the uh, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line. Uh, we oversee uh, roughly about $100 billion of assets under management uh, across a multitude of strategies, whether those are fixed income oriented. Uh, we run some systematic equity strategies. Uh, we run a systematic commodity strategy. Um, so really uh, a lot of uh, kind of the global macro things that, you know, Hugh and, and the team is familiar with on his side. Um, we kind of package those up in products, whether they're institutional-based, retail-focused, uh, whether it's mutual funds, ETFs, and the like. So um, we, we consider ourselves a, a full-service investment manager, and um, you know we, we build products that we want to invest in, and we think that um, you know our clients uh, want to see from us and the vehicles they want to see. And did you see a hundred billion? Is that is that is that is that a hundred yards here? That's a, that's a, that's <laughs> that a nice correct. number. It's, huh? like a, it's like a football field, a hundred yards. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, that's <laughs> nice. That's nice. So, what did you guys? I mean, what did you guys? How long before you got up to a hundred? Have you been there for quite a while? Was it quite? A, was it was a steep rise, or was that was that was that a slow journey up the mountain? Yeah. Well, we we founded the firm about twelve years ago, um, and so um, it was founded by Jeffrey Gunlock, and and forty five of us got together with him to really start. Uh, double line as we know it today. And so um, the, the rise was obviously pretty slow at first. And then you, you kind of have your hockey stick moment, right? As people talk about, right? The, the convexity moment, as the bond, bond nerds would say. Um, but, you know, we, we got to about 100 billion uh, back in 2016. Um, we've been above that, um, obviously, with the carnage in the markets this year, uh, taking a little bit of a hit to the AUM as well. Um, but we've been uh, at, at or around 100 billion right now for about six six years or so. And so um, again, it's uh, it's one of those where uh, it's it's a year where all asset classes are under duress, right? Except probably the commodity space, um, and you know, some in some cases the vol space. But 
ultimately, you know, what it is, is just trying to, you know, keep your eyes on the prize, right? It's trying to manage through this. Uh, it's important to be a risk manager today. Um, there's as much uncertainty as we've seen in markets. But the the good news is, is that a lot of these markets are some of the most attractive they've been in, in over the last decade or so. So it's starting to get to where it's a really solid opportunity set. Uh, the problem is, is that, you know, clients just don't want to look at their statements, right? Uh, it leads with a negative sign, uh, regardless of where you're invested today. And um, at, at some point, there'll be stability. But the nice thing about the fixed income world is that, you know, at least when you you look at the uh, landscape, you can start with yield, uh, you can kind of ding the stuff up, you can underwrite the credit, and you can get to the point where you can say, look, th there is a very significant opportunity there. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Hugh, come on, 100 yards, pretty sexy. And what do you make of the double line system? Are you are you a fan? Do you dig it? I, I, I'm just wondering, do you have to be called Jeffrey to, to get a an operational role in the business? Yeah, there's five of us. Um, so out of the 200 and, and roughly 290 employees we have, there's five of us with that that moniker. Um, but as I like to tell people, there's only one Jeffrey. Um, that's Mr. Gunlock, you know. So uh, I, I am colloquially referred to as Sherman uh, around the office. And, um, you know, and, and the other folks that have a Jeffrey name uh, also uh, go by their last names as well. But you don't call Gunlock Gunlock. You know, he, he goes by Jeffrey. <laughs> and I, I found it, initially I was persuaded to change but um like a cuckoo apart is it a cuckoo no it's not a cuckoo it's a blackbird i believe no uh, it's a magpie it's magpie. A magpie thank you chris um a magpie furnishes uh, they say that a magpie can can observe its image in a mirror uh, and therefore it when it's nesting it, it steals shiny baubles for the nest and so when I was operating my micro fund, I pursued that magpie approach and I had lots of crazy people in my, my five people were a little bit deviant, deviant you know, like deviant in the right, in the right sense. Um, is, is that the case with, I mean, deviant's not the word I wish to use. Colorful, colorful. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of quirky individuals, right? I mean, when you work on a trading desk, you, you know, you're, you're just going to have a lot of different personalities. And so I think one thing that when you look at our team, um, we have a lot of stability. And so if, you know, I said that we all started to, to join Double Line 12 years ago, but if you look at the average tenure of our portfolio management staff, you know, on average, we've been working together for about 16 years now. Um, so it, what you get is that you have these quirky, quirky behaviors, you have these idiosyncrasies across personality types, but somehow it works, right? It's like you need, you need that to have idea generation too. And so I think that that's one thing we've, we've tried to foster a culture that allows people to, you know, be themselves, right. You know, be the asset capitalist if you want. Right. Um, you know, but also uh, foster that area that allows people to really, you know, uh, challenge each other's thinking. Right. And so what, what I always found interesting about the investment world is that no two environments are the same. There's a lot of rhyming out there, but you've got to poke holes in the investment thesis all the time. And I think that's very important. And so I think some of that comes down to having different personalities as well. Right. You need different views, different cultures. And, and that really does shine uh, through through the investment lens. Yeah, I mean, indeed, that's why we, we reached out to you guys, because this is a universe of, of gray, boring people uh, disseminating a, a code which is off-putting to the majority. Um, whereas I always think of you as being as providing color. And like you say, to, to have 
the merest glimpse of what might happen, you have to be marching to a slightly different beat. I mean, that's the whole idea, the ethos behind acid capitalism. But where you excel, because, I mean, you guys, I, I think you had one of the fastest, most rapid accumulation of assets in the history of mankind. And that for me, that was wonderful because normally there's this terrible barrier of conservatism where they think, I like you, you're titillating me, but I'm not sure about giving money, not to the to the crazy guys. So it's always a balance between, hey, we're a little bit unhinged, but boy, do we see the future and boy, do we deliver. How do you manage that kind of, you know, it's a, a you know, it's a, it's a, a high wire act sometimes. Yeah, I think it's, you know, that's what the guardrails come in, right? It's that, you know, even though you have these ideas, you know, it, it doesn't always permeate the structure of the fund or the strategy at the time, right? Because, um, you know, you can't be too far out there, um, but you got to be out there enough to to be differentiated. So it is a balancing act. And I think a lot of that comes down to just really, you know, having in, engaging conversations among the team. And what that is, is just, you know, um, you know, bringing new research to the table, trying to poke holes in the way the portfolio looks today, looking at new new asset classes, new types, uh, new instruments out there. And so I, I think it's you, you've got to be sexy enough, right, to get people to have interest. Uh, but you can't be so sexy that no one wants to come to the party with you. Right. You know. Yeah. And quite, and, and then there is that, you know, once you reach the the incredible scale which you guys have attained, it's kind of like you've got to beat back the forces of inertia. It's like, hey, let's just keep, <laughs> let's stay where we are. It's kind of nice. And someone's right. going to keep challenging and say, come on, no, if we do, if we just consolidate, we lose the creativity. Without creativity, who are we? You know? That's right. And I think that's the, that's the thing too, as, as we've, you know, kind of launched into, let's call it the hybrid world and everything. Um, I think it's actually fostered more creativity personally. Um, you know, and that's because you have more time to think by yourself. You're not, you're not pulled into the bureaucracy of meetings all the time uh, as well, or just the, the random things that, that go on on a trading desk every day. And so, you know, uh, I think it, it is, you know, the lifeblood of investment management is, is ingenuity. Yes, there's a lot of uh, duplicity, right? It's not that we're, um, you know, creating everything from scratch, right? There's a lot of me too, and you get, you get someone else's good idea and you try to make it better. And so I think, you know, just, just having, having, a, you know, kind of that sketch pad or the sandbox to be able to play in, I think it's very important. And I think that that's what we try to do with our, our younger staff too, is try to encourage them, you know, to really just, you know, learn everything you can, right? Ask questions, you know, get around, get around smart people um, and, and see what you can, you can pull out of there too. And so there's a lot of good ideas that come from the younger staff as well. And I think that's something that we're very proud of. Mm. Can I yeah. ask, Ed, sorry, can I ask Jeff, Jeffrey, you, you talked about your sandbox here. So, you know, what's your creativity? How do you do it? Obviously, you're, you're an experienced guy, you know, you know where do you get your ideas from now? And, you know, what sort of flicks your switch in terms of kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, you have to be well read at the end of the day, right? I mean, you have to, you have to be a student of history. I think that's very important. Um, right. You've got to learn what you, you never get the feel for a market unless you've lived through it. Right. We can all talk about the, the crash of 87. But if you weren't there, I, I was not there. You know, you have no idea how that feels. Right. And so we've seen some crises now, at least in my career. I've been doing this for about two decades now. Um, and you, you learn a lot from those those environments, too. But all uh, really what I think it comes down to is understanding the theory. Uh, you've got to stay on top of, you know, kind of journal articles and just, you know, what are the cutting edge things? 
understanding that a lot of it is just repackaging, rebranding. Uh, there's not a lot of new ideas out there, as I said, especially on the quant side. Um, a lot of it's been out there. It's just the quants never told anybody about it. They write it down now, right? And and by writing it down, they've made it a lot cheaper for people, right? Uh, but I, I do think that you you have to stay apprised of, of the research and you've got to follow the macro data. To me, I always feel like macro guides markets. It's not going to tell you when to time to get in or out, um, but it does help you. It, it does give you that kind of shining light, right? It's your North Star to help get, uh, really start the, the thought process. And so from there, it's you know creating a framework. Um, and then, you know, just, uh, I love sounding ideas, but with my team, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do is what, what's wrong with this? What, 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 how can we improve this process or improve something to the portfolio? And so, uh, I think it's a lot of it is just, you know, being, being engaged and, and, and curious about it. And you just have to, you have to kind of stay on top of everything. Yeah. yeah. There's no roadmap there, you know, but and you, you you spoke about the kids, and the, the kids are, I think, vitally important. Uh, the selection, vitally important. That you're only as strong as you have a team that are willing to to push back at you. You know, which is that's hard for for junior members, but they're not serving you any utility unless they they're fearless and they say to you, Jeffrey, you're wrong. You know, that's yeah. No, you're right. And and I think the other thing is too is that you know they're going to make mistakes, right? And I think they're they're really nervous to make those mistakes. You know, I mean, we've all we've all put together a report or something, and it's absolutely incorrect. And you think it's the most marvelous piece of work you've ever done. And you know, I, I think that the thing about this business is that it's very humbling because you have you know the upper end, upper echelon of, of the IQ spectrum, right? People get in this business to make money, uh, and so there's a lot of smart, smart people. There's a lot of competition. But anyone can thrive in it, right? You, you can take. You, you don't have to be a scientist. Um, you know, we, we have poli sci majors. I guess that technically that is a sci, right? That's a scientist. Uh, but you know, you, you have all, all walks of life in there. I mean, you know, I, I have a couple of physicists around me. I mean, it's just it's. I, I think it, it brings more of the appeal of just having those different backgrounds too. So uh, I think challenging people is right. Um, I think making it a highly competitive environment is very good, and I think it's healthy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, do you get, you should encourage them to read Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, to read, like, to, like you say, reading is very important. But um, I think, so I I find this conversation, thank you for, you know, participating and joining, joining with us because I've, I've given a great consideration of that whole notion of, of creativity. Um, and like you say, this is, you know, before we had these global tech platforms that you know that that just go to one and world domination and where you know you could be Mark Zuckerberg and or you could be you know Elon um, and and the richest man on the earth. Before those guys, the highest return on intellectual capital was is what we do, and and right. I think you played to that. Therefore, it's rational to expect the participants in this activity are amongst the smartest people on the planet. Now, what I did was. I deconstructed because I said it doesn't make sense for me to try and outsmart the smartest people on the planet. That's that's dumb, right? And so I okay. kind of re-engineered it and I asked myself, why is it that super, super smart people are not guaranteed to succeed in this endeavor? And I'd love to hear your answer to that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes down to is there's <laughs> you can't write the formula down for success, right? 
Um, if, if there was the roadmap, it would have been discovered by now, right? We could buy all these smart people, right? So if, if we had some roadmap that was guaranteed to success, then we would all be on it and, and probably it wouldn't be as successful, right? You know, the return would go down, right? We'd all, we'd all kind of arbit away. Um, but I think that, you know, what you find too is that smart people also have trouble with your emotional intelligence, right? And some of this, uh, you know, trading is an emotional game, right? And I think part of the behavioral aspects of it really doesn't always go with that super highly intellectual personality, right? Um, that, you know, you, you struggle with the interpersonal skills and that interpersonal skills can be interacting with the market, the traders, trying to figure out how to, you know, kind of uh, seize on that opportunity. So I, I think some of it is just the personality types as well. Um, but there's, you know, we're talking ball, right? At the end of the day, none, none of us know. You don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what tomorrow brings in the market. And so I think that some people struggle with that too, just that that, that epsilon component, right? That, that there's this unexplained thing in the model. And I think sometimes that, you know, highly intelligent people struggle with that, right? They just, they, they want it to be completely explained. And I think that's part, that's one of the challenges there. No, I Is there an argument of ego that I, I wanted to say, because, um, you know, you were talking about how, you know, sort of stuff repackaged or rebranded. And I always think, because I'm, I'm the outsider here, you know, I always think if someone's doing well, why don't you just copy what they're doing in some way? Because if it's working for them, it can work for you. But I wonder, is there always a, a sense of ego in your world where I don't want to do what someone else is doing because I want to do it my way and I want to be, I want to show everybody I can do it instead of just actually maybe following someone else, making the money and everything's yeah. good. Yeah, I, I think it just depends on the entrepreneurial spirit too, right? Because the, the fake until you make it, it, it works a lot of times, right? But it's it's where do you where do you achieve success or how do you define success? And so, you know, if you just want to do what someone else is doing and you don't want to have your name, your brand, you don't want to leave your mark on something, then that's completely acceptable, right? Um, but a lot of us don't want that, right? Or you want to make a name for yourself, or you want to have a hat with your name on it, or your your name on on other people's uh, wearing on other people's heads, right? Um, and so I think at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about you know the ego, um, I think you have to have some in here because you have to be confident enough to do the trades, right? To put the portfolio together. I mean, it takes it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, but also, you have to. Yeah, I think it's also there's a lot of humility because you're going to be wrong you're going to be absolutely wrong and you're going to do it sometimes inside, right? And you have to learn from those experiences too. So that's what you have to have some form of ego, but you have to have to balance it out and have that humility on the other side. Because we all know the most dangerous thing outside of leverage is hubris, right? And that, that'll that that'll crush any, any manager out there because, um, you know, the system is much bigger than you. And I can just think about Look at look at some of the stories like the FTX thing that's happened, you know, in the last week. You know that that's a hubris again, right? Um, and so uh, I think you know, there's a lot of these things that get repeated in the market. But uh, I think you know, really creative things are what people look for, um, and I think it's what keeps us all you know interested in the business. But on the hubris, because I I I I worked with quite an inspirational uh, character twenty years ago, um, and he would take no ownership of of errors errors someone else made errors uh, you know there was a conceit and i was but he was fantastically successful and and so and i was kind of still my my brain neural pathway was still forming and and the dilemma for me was did i have to be that conceited you know and i took it to the level of the the men's or the ladies 100 meter sprint final at the olympics you know, to be in that final to be in that selection you cannot 
literally chemically distinguish between the athleticism unless the yeah. generational person. And yet one person wins and they win by these preposterously small margins. And is it because you they channel all of that ego and conceit and they say, I'm the best. And I just thought I couldn't get there because to your point, conceit, you, I couldn't see how conceit could give me tenure. You know, each year I wanted to do it again and again and again. And I, so I, yeah. I couldn't solve for that. I don't know, again, if, if you've had that consideration. Well, I, I think, too, another way, it's all about approach, too. And so, you know, how, how does one become the best? And, you know, there's all the studies out there that say, you know, the best fund or the best manager one year tends to be, you know, on the other side in the next couple of years or something like that. You know, it, there's not a lot of pattern of consistency of that. And so if you think about it and you want to have a long career, one way that it was taught to me, and this was from Mr. Gunlock, was that, you know, you don't have to be the best every day. You don't have to be the best every month. You don't have to be the best every year. You've got to be good enough. And if you're good enough and you 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 string a bunch of good enoughs together, uh, you look back 10 years later and you were great, right? Because people don't have that consistency as well. But that's a different approach, right? Uh, a lot of people that get in this business want to be the number one performer, the best, you know, um, you know, the master of the universe every single period. And, you know, it just it's very difficult to do it in, in any one period, let alone consistently. So I, I think it's it's also about that approach. And that's one thing that I, I've learned is that if you can find things that, you know, you can be good enough, you can just, you know, beat the benchmark, you know year in year out all of a sudden you look back and it's like wow you were a top decile or top percentile type of performer and so it's a, it's a different approach right but you know i think actually thank you i think you you brought clarity to that dilemma which has haunted me for 20 years that actually the answer is you just want to compete four years later in the final and four years later yeah. again and say consistency i was there and as we're seeing with the ftx you know that, that kid he won four years ago <laughs> but yeah. that's right yeah he's gone and, and like you know you're talking about you're talking about a billion you know poor guy he's only worth a billion now I, I mean who knows what it looks like if there's any liquidity there or not but you know i mean you won and when you win you know you should you should be thankful for it be happy for it too um, and, you know, most people don't, you know, they're not Elon, right? They don't have a PayPal. They don't turn it into a Tesla. They don't turn it into space. You know, they don't have, you know, multiple huge successes. And so uh, sometimes when you when you have that success, you got to you got to take a step back and, you know, chill out in St. Bart's for a little bit and, and enjoy it. But can I can, can I say something? Because we're, we're talking about tenure and I know Hugh's going to come back. But just if I can just quickly think some of my mind that I always think I always say I know Hugh a lot better than I, know, than I know you, Jeffrey. And, you know, Hugh's a great guy, but like, you know, he's got a ruthless side to him. But, you know, I think Hugh would, he would admit when, you know, when, he, when he's got to say something, he's got to do something, you'll say it. And there's been a few episodes of podcasts where he's, you know, he's went through people. And I can imagine when he was working, he was even more, you know, ruthless. I mean, how ruthless have you got to be? How ruthless do you think people got to be success? Because we're talking about, you know, you know, yeah. being, you know, ha having having an ego and you know, hubris and being, you know, interpersonal. Yeah. But there's got to be a point where surely you've got to be quite a ruthless person and sort of, you know, you, you put do. Your foot down. And, yeah, and I, I think if you surveyed my team, some people would would provide those comments as well on that side too and say that. But you know, um, I, I you know, I just don't like to settle for mediocrity. Right. It's that, you know, people, we expect the best out of them. We pay them um, commensurate with that. And, you know, you want 
good ideas. You want you also you want good product out back out. Like if you're putting together like a PowerPoint, I don't want to see typos in it, right? I mean, those things drive me mad, right? And so um, it's it's that caring enough to you know bring their best every single day to the office. And so um, you know, I'm not really a screamer. I'm more of a I'm, I'm very disappointed in you kind of guy. You know, you'll you'll know it. You know where you stand with me uh, on the desk. So if, and, and so if I show up with a PowerPoint with a staple, what do you do? You're gone. We're not listening. We're not doing the meeting. Everything's wrong. Um, I learned that early on that if there's one mistake, it's all wrong. And so you don't just go fix the mistake. You got to start over. Um, and, you know, so if it's wrong, it's wrong. I mean, look, we're talking about credibility. Uh, I think what, what Hugh said was perfect. We're, t- we're all competing in this 100 meter dash. And the difference between it is it's so infinitesimally small, right? And so when someone comes in and gives you a proposal like that, they didn't care enough. If you don't care enough, why should I care to take this meeting? Why should I listen to you? And, you know, that's always just kind of been something that was ingrained in me. It just, you know, having that attention to detail. And so I think part of that, it's maddening at times, right? And you're just like, do you even care, right? And if you don't care, then why are you here? So, um, you know, every once in a while, you got to have those conversations. And, you know, uh, again, if but you also have to put in the same effort. You can't, you know, Hugh's experience, he's talking about the guy wouldn't ever admit a mistake, right? You have to own up too. You have to do it. I mean, you're, we're not perfect, right? But we have you to make us look perfect, right? You make us look good, right? You you put us the data, you, you get it together. And so, um, you know, th- there is a ruthless side a little bit. And I think a lot of it is just, you know, again, not selling for mediocrity. Yeah, I, I find that the other side of that is it makes you a very bad poker player because when when <laughs> when mediocrity when mediocrity walks into the room, I don't have to <laughs> face t- tells the other person that they should. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why yeah. you have that look every time I see you here. No, I was wondering <laughs> what that look was. Yeah, no, and I, I think there there is something about it too that like you know you you have a high expectation as we said these are highly uh, highly functioning very, very high IQ people uh, that are around us all and so act like it you know and and it's we're not in the world of academia and so I have a, I have an analyst who came from academia and he uh, you know he was a physicist and I remember the, some of the first projects he was working on with, with me he was just saying well it's close to right. Yeah, yeah, I got I got the gist of it. I'm like, yeah, but it's sloppy. Like, yeah, but I got the, you know, I'm like, so that took a lot of, you know, uh, you know, breaking the horse in. It, you know, it's just kind of riding someone too to say, are you ever going to break through the ceiling part? Right? You, you've got you've got the skills, and I'd like to say he's been with us ten years now. And he's done a great job. He's he's moved on, and and he 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 now teaches other people to how to do this. And so I think it's a cycle of of really just trying to pull the best out of everyone and. You know, I, I probably was more of a, a ranter uh, earlier in my career, and at this stage now, I, I try to I try to step back a little bit and say, okay, is it really worth it? You know, all our blood pressure goes up. You know, what, what, you know, we, we have few fewer days on this earth just because of this. Is it really even worth it? Um, and so, uh, I think it's just you know, having people that care. I think it's important, and that's what we try to you know instill in everyone is that be proud of the product. It's not this isn't my product. It's not someone. It's our product. Right, it's our collective success. It's our collective failures. But when they're failures, we own them. Right? We don't. We don't expect the junior analyst to own them. It's my name on there. It's my fault. Right? You have to own it. Uh, as, as someone told me once, who runs the strategy? It's the one that goes into the front of the client and tells them about it in a very horrible market. That that's who's running the strategy. 
right? The one that everybody has uh, the success when when money's pouring in and everybody uh, contributed very well there. But the other way around, it's a lot harder. And guess what? 2022 is one of those years. It's a lot harder. I was going to ask about that. So because because there you are trying to, you know, we're all like some of us are trying to be rolling stones asking, like you say, but we have these parameters and, and control barriers which keep us steady, which allow people to congregate, put money in. But it, but at the essence, you're trying to instill that kind of magic creativity to to take on this preposterous assumption of seeing tomorrow. OK, um, and that's wonderful. But then you get contextually really tough years where it's hard to be different. And th- like you say, this is a this is yeah. a tough year. So how do you deal with you know, is this just kind of like you put your head down? We just got to get through it and then we'll bounce back again or. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's been kind of. I, I feel like some of the some weeks uh, at our investment meetings, I'm more of a cheerleader than anything. I'm just trying to keep people fired up, right? Because you're getting negative returns, right? You're buying assets you think are good assets that are going down in price, right? You think that they are good for a long run investment. Um, and by the way, um, because we have you know daily liquidity vehicles, money walks out the door every day. Right. And so and not every single day, but practically m- most days, it feels like this year. Um, and so how, what do you do there? You've got to keep your value threshold high. Right. That's, that's one thing I, I say to the team many times, like make sure that you're under re underwriting for the new environment. Everything looks contextually cheap. If you screen things like in the fixed income marketplace, um, you're, you're getting things that if you if you look in the last 15 years, they're probably in the, the cheapest five percentile. Right. Um, does that mean that they they can't go down? No, they can still mark the market down. So I think what what what's the frustrating thing in this type of environment is when people are also wanting to sell their assets, right? So they want to divest from the strategy, right? Because they're doing something else or they're just tired of losing. Um, and when they come back, you've got to be good enough, right? And so this is this is coming back to that that first part we talked about being good enough. So you want to be able to say like, look, we outperformed in this area. Does it suck to be down double digits? Absolutely. It doesn't make any of us feel good. But when money comes back, those screens are going to be important again. You got to look at the threes, the fives, the sevens, the tens. That's just what people are going to look at. And so it's just making sure that people can stay focused, right? Um, you know, when you're in a down market and you have to sell assets into it, it, it just, it, it's demoralizing, right? Because you're like, I, I, this, is, this has good value, but we have to manage the risk of the portfolio too. So it's, it's juggling those things together. Um, and it's like, you know, when you're getting beaten up, I mean, you've looked at your funds before and when they're just, you have these runs where you're down, you're down, you're down, you get down personally, right. Emotionally. And you have to, you have to get that, that reset button too. So, um, it is difficult, but I think that's, that's part of, um, you know, that long-term playing the game is that you got to be good enough. And at some point money will flow back in the asset classes, right? It it just does, right. That's what's going to happen. And so, um, as you said, it's preposterous to try to predict the future, and me trying to predict that moment that's going to change is preposterous as well. Yeah. But you know, like like you say, the loneliness of of risk taking, um, the danger is you know, like you see confirmation mirror mirror on the wall, which is your <laughs> yeah. UPL, right? Mirror mirror on the yeah. wall. Who's the prettiest of them all, right? And if this year, if, if you if you ask that question too many times, it says you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. You go, right. huh, and you start to believe it. If you ask it one time, if your cadence is is slowly set, 
It goes like, yeah. like you say, hey, you got to the 100 meters final. You got to the 100 meters final. You're a genius. So again, it's, yep. it's, it's control. But what I want to say, I, tell me this. So like a large element of your franchise would be the kind of the the intellect, what you bring into fixed income markets. Yeah. Yeah. And macro is having a pretty dec- decent year um, out of fixed income. It. Is that not permitted for you owing to the guardrails in terms of, you know, the obligation to have particular types of funds? Or do you have a, a fund where there are no guardrails and you're kind of macro-esque in your performance? Yeah. Um, so that would be more like our private placement, like a hedge fund type strategy. But most of our investments tend to be on the long only side. Um, and so, you, you know, you just have limits on what you can do there. Um, you know, it, on the on the macro side too. I mean, like what's won this year is just shorting rates, right? If, if you short rates, if you short if you short credit spreads too, e- either of those trades have been just killer for this year, right? Um, but I think the tide's turning on that. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think you know, look, it's calling the end of this inflation era is going to be tough. I think the market massively overreacted last week by a whopping twenty basis point downside in CPI. It's like we're all clear. The Fed's done. I mean, they, they took like a, a hike and a half out of the market uh, on one trading day. I, I think just everybody was short going in because it's it's just been so bad. It just it smelled like a short covering rally on on everything. But when you when you start to look at the environment now, um, just how much uh, tightening's been in the system, the quantitative tightening that's going on uh, that's that no one talks about, right? The, the Fed doesn't even no one even asks the questions at the Fed press conferences anymore about it. So that, that truly is an automatic pilot, but. If you think about this rate rate hike regime, um, it will be if they deliver the fifty, which is widely expected next month. I, I think they'll do fifty. Um, they're gonna it's gonna be the highest you know that the Fed's ever hiked in a calendar year. Now it's by twenty five basis points. Who really cares? It's not a big you know. It's not like they're it's not like we're in a late seventies environment where they're hiking eight eight nine hundred basis points uh, over two years. But I think that the, the the tide is turning on this because we've slowed slowed things down. You see it across the board. Um, you know, the the refis and stuff inside of the corporate market, they're going to get costly. It's just going to take a little more time to work through the system. And so the, my fear about all of this is that, you know, the Fed is is, is looking at all this lag data. Um, you know, again, corporate spreads, they're a lot wider, or yields are a lot higher, but there's not a lot of activity going on there. So the, the interest coverage is low. So maybe it takes a little bit longer in this hiking cycle to feel that pain into corporate America. Right, because they did such a good job refinancing a few years back. So as you start to look at these things, I think that you know the macro side is extremely important. Um, but I do think we're getting very close to that inflection point. And as you said, as a risk taker, it's very lonely uh, when you're trying to identify the inflections. It's easy to ride the trends, right? The inflection points are pivotal um, in one risk management. Secondly, trying to seize on an opportunity, and so. I feel like we're just getting to this point where now with yields where they are, they do offer good protection against risk taking. Uh, and what I mean by that is you, you can just buy buy some long treasuries, whether tens, thirties, something back into the curve, and it can allow you to sit in these other positions and feel comfortable, right? And so to me, it's that compositions changing, and that's what's happening in the macro landscape. Um, do I think we go back to zero? Probably not. Um, but, you know, if we're going to have some form of recession, um, you know, long bond can rally 30, 40 points, right? 
Um, you know, so it can it can it can offset some of that credit you have in your portfolio. So that's what we're really looking at in that we we haven't really done that getting long duration trade in the macro fund yet. We're eyeing it. We're eyeing it. We want to get that one almost right. You know, where the other ones you want to leg into. But um, the other curious thing that I noticed is we've been talking about it for a few years is that we noticed that in the rates market, it, it seems that the end of the year tends to be kind of an inflation point to the high end rates or the low end rates for the year. And so it just kind of feels like coming into 2023, I think you want to reverse the trades you've been doing this year. And I, I do think that you're going to want to own kind of that, that back into the curve type of duration uh, to allow you to, to really take risk in other parts of the portfolio. But can you really like, I mean, you know, I, I, ad, I admire uh, what's, what's necessary, you know, like you're beginning to see the honey <laughs> I, I love yeah. this Buddhist expression, licking the honey from the, the razor's edge, right? You can <laughs> yeah. see the honey, you're thinking, you're a bee, you're buzzing, you're thinking, I, I want to lick the honey. And I really want a lot of honey, you know, like, there are points, like you say, this is such a big macro event. And it's, yep. but again, is that, is that, is that the mistake? Like, you have to temper that. It, I, I guess what I want to say is, do you think you no longer can make reputational bets? No, you can't, and you have to. Uh, you have to be able to do this, and and so like it, it's one of those things where you know they're called futures. Just put the trade on, and you just have to live with it. Now, now we all know Hugh that that the other side of that is that your clients will also call you an idiot, right? And and so they're they're going to say that like I, I bought this fund for you to do whatever you want, but don't do that. Right, you don't do that. Why, you know why would the, you do that? You know the 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 infamous story of Michael Steinhardt. You he he was loading up with ten year yeah. in 1982, and he had an amazing like as always he had an amazing performance. But you know went a little bit early as as is yeah. you know, that's that's what we do. And he yeah. had, he had clients suing him for style drift. <laughs> He right. was not allowed, like, well, what are you doing in fixed income? He's like, well, the, the yield 16% and inflation is collapsing. I'm buying them. No, you can't do that. Right. Yeah. yeah, no. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's where the parameters come into things too. And so, you know, for for kind of the, the core kind of fixed income positions, we've been adding duration for the last couple of months, just stepping into that. But for this type of product, this is something that, you know, we'd slap another four to five years of duration on, uh, you know, overnight. When we're ready for that, so that that's something. It's a different vehicle, right? So I think at the end of the day, right now you're you're starting to see that. But as you said, you want to lick the honey, but then what happens when the client takes the honey away, right? So you, you get your positioning, you want to do it, and then all of a sudden, you know, no one wants you to invest for them, right? So that it's a delicate balance, right? And and that's part of it. And I don't call it marketing or gamesmanship, but you still have to do, you have to do the right, you have to do it in the right proportions to the vehicle, right? And so, uh, you know, to me, I, I think credit looks very interesting still. Yeah, I think we can have a recession, but guess what? Maybe spreads aren't wide, as wide as they are typically in a recession. But as you said, you got to get in early. You can't go lift credit, right? You have to build credit positions. It takes time, right? We buy cash securities. You, you don't just whip it around. And so I think it, it is one of those markets too, where, you know, there's going to be winners and losers in this, this whatever this kind of recession looks like next year. And is it mild? I'm, I'm going to call the soft landing the mild uh, case. Um, and it stays kind of concentrated in a couple of industries and doesn't have knockout effects. 
If it's deeper, then spread should be meaningfully wider. Um, but also, uh, I think that's a combination of rates rallying too. So, you know, spreads can widen just by rates coming down, right? People forget that as well, especially if you are in kind of a deflationary bust. So I don't know if we're there yet, um, but you're starting to see signs of it. And I mean, if you can put together a credit portfolio that, you know, again, it's going to be below investment grade, right? I mean, if you want to take risks, you can put stuff together that, that could easily yield 12 to 13 percent today. OK, you can put that together. It's calculated. Yeah. OK, you can. And then you can slap a rates trade on it. Right. So guess what? You have a kind of a barbell uh, type of position that, that could work out there. And so look, you're, do you need some convexity on the, the other side to guard against the credit? But, yeah. Like, but so you, you have the credit convexity because the, those things aren't being, you know, the, those loans aren't being made at par. Right. These no, are things that trade. I mean, the convexity, yeah. I'm saying the convexity is on the credit side and, and it can be yeah. up for us. You, it, like yeah, you're barbelling, right. you kind of need a, hey, what if the Fed's going back to zero kind of thing as a protection? Yeah. No? That, and that's what, and that's why you put the rate straight on on the other side, right? And it's getting to that point where it, it does look very interesting that you can balance these things out. And that's something we haven't seen since like really like 2011, right? Where you could actually go out and do these type of positioning. And so, um, you know, people got lulled into the low rate environment that we're going to be low forever. That that's in the rearview mirror. Yes, if we have another recession, the Fed will cut rates. Um, you know, they're telling you they're only going to go to neutral, only going to go to two and a half, but two and a half is a long way from the five they're going to, right? So th there is the ability to do that. And you're absolutely right. Um, you need that positive convexity if something, if you if you get to this kind of bad event. But if these assets are trading like 60 cents on the dollar and they're not distressed, right? Uh, remember, the interest coverage is what they're paying, right? They're not paying the yield that we're obtaining, right? Because they've already financed out there. So that's why I say, I think you have positive credit convexity. Uh, even if, even with a recession, you know, the, the average dollar price that stuff probably is at least 90, right? Yeah. So you think about that, there's 20 points sitting on the table there. It's just, how are you going to get it, Hugh? Are you going to get it in 12 months? Or are you going to get it in 36 months? What's it going to look like? And, you know, also, how do you weather that storm? And I do think that it is the time to really be circling the wagons and looking for this kind of deflationary bust scenario as I won't call it a tail risk, but I'm, I'm going to call it a component of the portfolio today. I'm glad you made reference to 2011 because I, I was, I was going to ask you, um, there's this intangible thing, this, this experience, just having, again, had the tenure, having participated in all those final races. I mean, here I am in St. Bars. I have like, I look at charts, they're on free, free websites, you know, like I have no Bloomberg by choice. Some, some yeah. people think I had money in, God forbid, FTX. Um, and yet it comes to me. I get, I don't know if it's clarity, but I hear voices. I'm disseminating. I'm having that macro dial. I can't switch it off. I go surfing. I do yoga. I play paddle. Boom. I'm still thinking about it. And like, and so you're doing the same and your deliberation is 2011. And for the you know folks watching, 2011, the Fed went QE. Everyone rushed into commodities. Commodities had a yep. huge price. And at the same time, China was just laying down concrete and building these you know, properties and consuming. Um, but people came in to protect their wealth against hyperinflation. The commodity miners put in a ton of capacity, just 
power went <laughs> power went to yeah. the or something, and they all got wiped out. And like you say, by 2011, people had to go, it's the wrong trade, and all got and like the we had COVID, and everyone again kind of went back into property. They went into yep. Bitcoin. You know, they yep. went into, I've got to protect myself. That's right. And then it's and you can see it all being you know unwound and the last the last thing is always the fed to get it it's the guy at the end of yep. the you know you can't wait for the fed it's like wait yeah, well i mean so that's that's a, that's a perverse thing about them being data dependent right because the data they're looking at is backward looking so oh. by the time they get they get it it's a confirmation bias that it's too far uh, ahead it's too they're, they're too far gone into it and so I, I think you're absolutely right there and you know look the, the qe playbook will be open again uh, when they need it. Um, and I, I, get, I get the question a lot recently from clients saying, well, now with yields where they are, what about the deficit now? That That's starting to come to a lot of conversations. And I'm like, don't worry about it. You know why don't worry about it? Because guess what? They already have four trillion in treasuries on the balance sheet finance at zero. Guess what? They, they can go buy the high coupon ones next time, right? When they want to do it. And so um, you know, you're starting to you're starting to hear those same same similarities. Uh, I like that you brought that up about 2011, but I, I do see that a lot of those thematic ideas that are back in vogue again. And you know, it's it's the antithesis of QE. It's you know, we were foolish to think that you know everything's going to be tech all the time, and it, it's just these these very similar themes that we've seen before. And so I think that as you look at this environment, there is a lot of similarity there. But also, there's just still this risk of inflation that we haven't seen really in in a, in a few decades, and I think that's still the overhang on the market, and it's going to be. And look, if somehow we can engineer this glide path to whatever, um, you know, I, I love the economist forecast. No matter where inflation is in the next twelve to eighteen months, it goes to two, right? I, I mean, every single, I mean, even if it was eight and a half, it's going to two, and it's like. I, I don't know. I just I don't buy it that we're going to that level. And I think that, you know, we've put put a lot of juice in the system. We've done, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, wage shifting as well. Prices were extreme. You know, every single, uh, you know, S&P 500 company, when you when you look at profit margins from June of this year, it was a 40 year high. How can that be, Hugh? How can it be a 40 year high when we're all dealing with inflation? All this? It's because they passed it through thinking it's coming. Right. So you have this kind of self-fulfilling side. And so I, I'm just concerned that, you know, when we get back on the glide path, it's not two anymore. Maybe it's three, maybe it's four. Um, you know, that's that's the new level. And if that's the case, we still have some more resets to do, but it's getting closer. It's getting closer. And then, you know, like, look, if, if they get magically to two and they don't overshoot it, um, you know, kudos to them. But uh, I just don't, I, I, I just don't see it. Right. When, when you overshoot one way, you overshoot the other. Right. Indeed. And, and they're looking at corporate. I mean, corporates are monkey brain. I mean, and I, I say that I have a monkey brain. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not throwing bricks or whatever. But, you know, corporates sat there going, you know, two years ago. Going, Shit, we don't like people want to buy stuff and our shelves are empty. Like order. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. there's, there's a delay. And they're like, what do you mean there's a delay? Order more. Order more. Right. And it's an avalanche. I mean, I look at the... So they produce what two point three GDP growth third quarter thereabouts, yeah. Yep. 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 What happened? Like people stopped, corporate stopped ordering because Monkey Brain went, "Hey, stop, stop! We now can't yeah. sell and stuff. Stop, stop, stop!" Right. And so yeah. you take the negative drag of like less imports, your GDP strong. Is that a good strong? No, it's not. It's actually no. It's all unwinding, but. 
Yeah, yeah I, I thought I thought that at the beginning of the year when I was looking at the GDP releases too. I'm like, well, look, you know, you still have you still have consumption, right? So the consumers there. You had private fixed investment the first quarter, but as you said, it was the deficit. Uh, I'm sorry, it was the trade deficit and government spending. I'm like, I'm kudos to that, right? Then we got that again, and so now you're starting to see again some of the government spending coming back into there a little bit. But you know, look, the consumer somehow this year has stayed strong. Right now, are they using credit card? Who knows uh, what it looks like? But also, I think some of it has been, you know, the lifestyle. I think people sold assets. You know, as you said, you know, people went to real tangible things. We were talking about this before we, we, we launched the podcast, right? Buying property, doing real things with money, monetizing that. And I think they also did it with experiences this year, right? So you saw this with the service side of the equation, even stripping out shelter. Services remain strong. And I think some of that, again, it's just it's a hypothesis I've batted around for a little bit and, you know, can't prove it. But I feel like if you look at money flow, if it leaving the asset management space, I think it went to experiences as well. Right. And so I think that's part of that consumption pattern. Now, that's, that, that's not tenable for the long run, but, you know, uh, none of these policies are. So uh, I, I just think that you, you got to watch that side of the equation. Obviously, housing is a problem uh, in this country. Uh, prices, you know, the affordability. I, I, I love hearing this, the stories about, well, when I first got my mortgage, you know, it was 17, you know, it was, it was 7%, 9%. There's no big deal. And I'm like, yeah, but the house was one eighth of the price that it is today. Right. And so it's all about that payment. And so there's going to be some slowdown undeniably, um, but that's the definition of what a tightening cycle is. So I, what I'd like to see, you know, you talk about the monkey brains. I'd like to see, you know, things get flushed out. I'd love to see the, the zombie companies, you know, again, I'm not rooting for anyone's demise, but let, let's go through a typical, you know, deleveraging cycle and let's flush out the bad actors, right? And I think that's what you're seeing now that any business model is predicated on low interest rates forever is challenged, right? And I think you're going to see some of that um, in 2023 start to really start to see, see some cracks. I, I, you know, I cited, you know, the Buddhism of, um, you know, the honey and the razor's edge. And in a big thing which I've taken on this year is, you know, the impermanence of life. You know, I think that Steve Jobs' famous speech to the university kids was, you know, when you're calibrating downside, you've got to remember that you're going to die. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, every day you're dying, right? So once you understand how sh kind of ultimately shit things are, just deal with the other stuff, okay? So, um, and again, back to the your involvement, in the universe of fixed income. Um, it has been a, a profound and very long bull market. Now, I yep. say profound because it's a bull market, if you will, in, in the risk-free rate. And up until very recently, that came with a very low volatility relative to other asset classes. And therefore, it allowed you to leverage and it never let yep. you down. And indeed, what's he called the hedge fund that does the vol adjustment through the permanent portfolio kind of idea um okay um you know those guys made the biggest uh return to investors um in in the history because they began in 1980 who am i thinking about um the, the big what the, what's the biggest hedge fund ray delalio what's his thing called bridgewater bridgewater Oh, oh, uh, Bridgewater, Bridgewater. Yeah, so Bridgewater's yeah. room, Bridgewater. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, if you think about the all weather, or like, yeah, Go ahead. yeah. effectively you ran a vol model that said buy more bonds and you started that 50 years, 40 years ago. 
you know, I'm, I'm not putting it down, but context is is a wonderful thing. But what I have a flight of fancy of a theory that I'd like to, and it's a preposterous theory. So you know, obviously, it's a massive capitalist theory. Um, I so impermanence. We have something which has lasted. It feels like a lifetime. It isn't an adult lifetime, okay? But we know that everything comes to an end, okay? And I'm trying to kind of describe. I'm trying to role play the end of the treasury bull market. And and to role play the end, I'm going back to the beginning, and I'm saying the beginning was marked with absurdity, in that you know the the Fed had a very aggressive rate hiking in a very like a real time severe recession. Okay, we weren't we weren't considering how bad the economy was going to be. It was bad, and they were hiking, and that went on for at least two years. And if you had a pulse, you could determine that inf inflation was in abeyance and collapsing. And the absurdity was you end, despite that, you ended up at 20% Fed and 16%, you know, 10-year rates. That kind of like, we talked about Michael Steinhardt being sued. A an alien coming and, and, and looking at our world would say, that's kind of, that's kind of weird. Like human beings are kind of, it's kind of. It's absurd, right? You're doing too much French philosophy. Okay? Well, I think we 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 tend to be too much of a what I'll call the naive extrapolators, right? We we take recent history and we extrapolate it out indefinitely, right? And so I think some of that is that you know when you saw rates like that, it's like well they have to be that because they've been there. And there's a lot of anchoring that goes on in interest rates. I think that. You know, at some point you're like, well, I, we, we can't stomach a 2% tenure. I mean, how many times did you hear that in the last couple of years? Like, it'll destroy the economy. And what happens is that you just get the psychological barrier. You, you hit levels. And, you know, I, I, I equate this to people who go house shopping, right? The mortgage rate's three or it was a, few, you know, a couple of years ago. It was 3%. Like, oh, I can afford this. Oh, wait, it went to 4%. I'm, I'm not buying anything. Then three months later, you're like, well, four and a half. Who cares? I'm just going to buy it. And so there's just something where there's this human nature that we we tend to anchor on, on specific numbers and then we extrapolate, right? And, you know, that's what a lot of forecasting is, is just naive extrapolation. Yeah. But let, let's talk about less naive extrapolation. But also... Sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. I'm curious with regard to in the inner sanctum of, of your franchise, are you, someone has to be role-playing and asking the question, what does the end of the treasury bull market look like? And will we be able to see it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's our $100 billion question, right? <laughs> you know, when you think about it. And, uh, you know, we've always been able to finance these things. And, you know, people come back to look at debt to GDP ratios, and we're essentially at the point of no return. Right. Um, but I think one thing that is we should be thankful for in this inflationary environment we've experienced is that we've grown at nominal rates. Right. That helps erode you know, it erodes purchasing power. You know, so I, I take that uh, as one of the, the side effects of it. But that's part of the whole you know financing scheme. Right. Um, you know, so to have some level of inflation to kind of, you know, dilute the 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 purchasing power of the Treasury is exactly what they want to do. And so, you know. 
it's one of those things where you know, we, we've always relied on some form of external financing, right? It was, it's always been Japan has been, you know, one of the number one buyers. China was there for a bit. Maybe that gets a little rockier going forward. But we now know who the buyer of last resort is. We know it. It's called the Fed, right? Yeah. And they're just going to sock it onto their balance sheet and they're, they're going to continue to do it. So what does the end look like? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe those hyperinflationists were right in 2009 and 10 and saying all this QE is going to lead to inflation. Maybe it got pent up in the system for so long. Um, you know, that, that's not a very popular opinion, right? Um, but ultimately, you know, where, where it ends up, it's hard to see because, you know, we don't hold, you know, our elected officials accountable, right? They, they just spend on, you know, personalized packages that help their constituents only. And it's just, it's a very challenging world like that, right? That there's just no responsibility. And so the fiscal restraint went out, you know, decades ago, right? Yeah. But then, you know, I, I, it's too easy. I mean, it's legitimate to, to have a go with the, the public, you know, leaders, leadership, but there's a profound deficit I think in the kind of the intellectual pool of advisory um and and an understanding you said you're you're you are of course very well read um I I would put it to you that um the orthodoxy that you came to understand has not been relevant for the last 20 years at least the the orthodoxy there you know it's always in question and so I think you know if you if you take someone who's been in this business in the last let's just say only the last ten years, they think the orthodoxy is QE, right? You know, there's there's no such thing as a as a temporary program when it comes to intervention, right? You know, QE was supposed to be very temporary, right? They were only going to do it for a few months and it was over, right? Um, but that has become the orthodoxy. And then just look at what happened in the UK last month, right? They, they in the middle of fighting inflation, they said, no, we're going to cut taxes. You know, we're going to uh, do QE again and, and the market revolted. Right. And so I, I think it, it's a what is the orthodoxy? It changes because that's one, something that worked in a very low inflation environment. And, you know, we haven't seen these levels of inflation. I think that is really what's changed is that people are, are now saying that, you know, wait, maybe maybe these programs, maybe the magic money tree or MMT, you know, as people called it, just doesn't work. Right. Um, you, you're going to get to the point of having some form of inflation. And, you know, maybe we'll look back and say in 2020 and 2021, we shouldn't have given as much money out. We gave handouts to everybody. Right. We get PPE loans. You know, senators got them. You know, um, you know, corporate America got a lot of it. There, there was just a lot of money being sprayed around. And so I think that that should probably, you know, kind of nail that the, the co- put the nail in the coffin on that theory at this point in time. And, you know, people just don't like inflation. And it's just that's a completely different regime. And so when you talk about the orthodoxy, I think it's all about reference point, too. And there's a lot of it where people start their careers or what they've experienced. Right. They're only you're all, we're all a function of our own experiences. And so if we have that experience, it's all we know. Right. And that's where I think, you know, as you say, you need to learn about other environments. You need to learn about different regimes. You need to you need to travel. You need to see things that you got to open that mind to be able to think uh, things that challenge the orthodoxy. Mm. So and so my, my take on absurdity for the end of the treasury uh, bull market, because people think we're at the end now, like, you know, inflation has emerged for all of the, the phantoms, if you will, that you've mentioned from QE to MMT. And very hard to put it back in the, in the, 
in the bottle. And of course, yeah. like you said, consumption has remained durable. It's, it's withstood the nominal shock. Um, my my feeling is that this could be the end. Like I, the bull markets end with the kind of the adult life expectation, like the, the way where you uh, procure your wealth for the latter stage. So you've kind of like got 35, 40 years and you find bull markets kind of something, you know, who knows, kind of cooking. Um, I can't see how the greatest bull market in the history of financial markets ends with everyone being right. Yeah, we've got yeah. to deals go off. So for me, I bring back absurdity and I say, I actually think that the Fed, because it, it's her view of money is so narrow. And like the monetary inflation was out here. It was non-sovereign money via the euro dollar system that, yeah. that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And the only inflation we got was in asset prices from, yeah. you know, like dollars created offshore seeking to replicate themselves in, in an asset bubble. And as that unwinds, and it is dramatically unwinding, you're actually seeing the destruction of money or the destruction of the rejection of collateral and therefore the the definition of high-powered money is shrinking back to US Treasury bills and is profoundly deflationary. So when I look at it, I actually think it wouldn't, of course, it would be absurd if the Fed had to go back to zero. You know, if we went back to 50 basis points on the 10-year and it, yeah. you know, that would be the Fed at 20% in 1982. And then everyone would be, oh my God, we've got to buy treasuries again. And at that point, I think, yeah, that's the end of the bull market. You see, you've kind of got to think. Yeah. yeah and I, I feel like, you know, if you look at the charts, you know, we did break out of all the channels, right? Those downward channels that were set since 82. And so, you know, is, is it a head fake and we're going to retest or not? I'm not convinced because I, I just think that that it, it comes back down to the inflation genie, as you said, it's out, right? I, I think the Fed would take a victory lap to get a three and a half percent inflation rate. If it was there for a while, I think they'd be stoked with that. Well, if you have a three and a half percent inflation rate, how the hell do we get to a 50 basis point tenure, right? You know, like that that's the thing. And so I, I, I agree with you in the capacity that, you know, it is going to be a challenge once once we get to this. But look at look at money supply. Right. M2 growth is going negative. Right. That is a deflationary shock, usually. So that's kind of why I'm also saying I like this deflationary component for my portfolio. Right. And so I do think that, you know, there is a piece there, but it's also there's a lot of risk to this, too. Right. That's why the trade's not on yet. Right. What what if we get a, a sneaky inflation report next month? Right. Oh, and no, then all of a sudden. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, what if you noise. get it? Yeah. yeah that, it's noise. It, but it makes the path very unpleasant you know and i guess it's unpleasant I, yeah and but i think you know look the market's got it priced uh, you know we, we came off of the the hikes a little bit you know euro dollar curve says you know we probably get to close to five uh in fed funds uh, seems right you know with the path they're telling us and they just got to stop at some point that that's that's the risk i think to all this if the fed doesn't stop yeah because they need yeah. it to leak they need to just wait for these long and variable lags and I'm just I, I I'm I'm afraid that potentially in this this environment that maybe the lag is a little bit longer because of the lack of financing needs, right? Because corporate America did so much in 2021 and extended maturities out. There's no high yield maturity walls. These are usually the signs of things that cause stresses in credit markets. And and so I'm wondering, you know, because of the path has been so fast, it hasn't really went into the system. 
right? Because there's not all this borrowing that gets done at these rates. They're, they're done at, you know, the previous interest rate level, it's just yields are higher. So maybe that's a different lag in the system this time, which then emboldens the Fed to go too far, right? But I think the reason we're talking about this, you know, in the Fed is because that is the number one centerpiece on how you're going to make money going forward. You've got to get this trade right on the Fed, right? They've got to get to some point where they've got to stop. And then we got to see what happens in the system. And, you know, I, I just don't think it's there yet. And, but you know, the Fed, we know, the Fed will stop when the the damage of its policy becomes shockingly apparent. I can't think of another time when the Fed didn't stop because it had to, because circumstances demanded it. Right. And I think what you're seeing in, in the markets, too, is that where they're getting to the point where they're pricing now the rollover in the Fed or what they call the Fed pivot at this point in time, that they're going to cut rates. But to me, that's just extrapolating the last experience. Right. The last hiking regime ended in December of 18. They uh, they they stopped hiking. They cut rates in March of 19. Right. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, three months. Well, that's monkey brain again, says. That's what just happened last time. That's what they're going to do this time. And you kind of see that a little bit in the curve. But normally they, they have to stick at these levels for a period of time. And so I, I would I don't want to bet on the, the Fed rollover effects. But guess what? While we're waiting, if I buy a 30 year treasury and it yields four, at least I carry while I wait. It's not going to get you rich. Right. But it's not yielding 100 basis points like it was two years ago. Right. I think the four percent treasury is kind of close. I think the 4% Treasury and the Fed terminal rate at five, Yeah, you consider the 70s, and let's approximate, right? Debt to GDP 70s was the end of a 40-year deleveraging cycle. It was 1x, yeah. a little bit more, but call yeah. it 1x, right? Today, yeah. it's 4x. And so I want to say that 4, 4% Treasuries are the equivalent of 16% Treasuries in June 82, and 20% yep. Fed funds rate. You know, yep. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the logic completely makes sense. And I, I think that it's right. The curve should be inverted uh, because, yeah. again, I don't think we're staying here for a long period of time. And it's going to be hard to drag that back into the curve up to 5%. Uh, I think, you know, you'd have to see, in order to do that, uh, I think you'd have to see inflation be more persistent and we're continuing to grow and not have a, a, a deflationary scare. Right. And I think that that's the problem is that when you look at the economic data, it's ripe for a deflationary scare. Um, and I think that that's what's kind of caused all this volatility in the rates market is that you can see both sides playing out at this point. So it, it is a, I think it is, there is a lot of equivalence to that kind of, you know, late 70s, early 80s behavior. To my mind, there's. There's, there's one thing to have a leveraged economy, and I get that. And people, they, they quote the debt to GDP without quoting the, the wealth to GDP, which supports sure, it. Yeah. It's also very yeah. high. Two stocks. Yeah. Um, but the the golden macro rule is don't mess with the carry. You can run yeah. elevated debt, but if you damn mess with the carry, you are yeah. going to bring chaos into the process. And I think we're very close you know, this is the the dawn of chaos, if you will. Now, what I wanted to ask, I'm very conscious of your time, got to wind up. I wanted to ask, so I think the Fed is very guilty of being very inward looking and, and ignoring a lot of the, ex, the exterior frontiers and, and the revolution in 40 years in money creation, that there's way more dollars. Like money has lost its sovereignty. The dollar has lost its sovereignty. The dollar is not the purview, the purview of, 
uh, local actions within the borders of America. It's actually being created an enormity elsewhere, right? And it's being created again by um, forms of non-dollar collateral, which are being unwound, and we see that in the dollar's rise. I just wanted, like, again, in your internal debates, what attention do you give to things like euro-dollar, collateral? And also, because you said something which, forgive me, but it irked me, um, mm -hmm. in that we were talking about external financing, Japan, and, that, and then it was China, how how we were reliant. I think that's that, that's just... We were not like we've now. Now I'm I'm American. I mean, I may as well be. Um, America was not reliant. America was the only damn territory that was willing to accept a sovereign coming in with surplus savings and dumping it into your economy where it wasn't necessary. And China's, yeah. of course, just done that again. And to my, you know, China et al. Have, are responsible for cumulatively what nine trillion dollars going into the us right which would be incredible if we were the 19th century and you were building canals multiple right. yeah. railroads and you needed it yeah. but when you don't need it when you're well so you the the amazing thing about now is you can be a trade deficit nation but your domestic investment needs are well covered by your domestic savings needs right and so the money that comes in effectively destroys the utility and the signaling of of rates of you know of what real rates mean yeah and so you get misallocation and you get possibly you get bubbles bubbles are normative judgment mm -hmm. but my concern my concern again and the notion of where we might have to go really low i think the last great deflation episode of this cycle is 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 china is is china like you know that 90 trillion high tech mark on their on their property um yeah. the slide yeah i mean look if you think about it too i mean it's undeniable that they're slowing now as well you know the, the zero covid policy has been horrific for them as well but if you look they haven't really had the inflation because as you said they took it all and they kept it all domestically and so as you look at kind of the the next episode there how do you even grow at, you know, what, beyond what's in the developed world at this point? How do you grow beyond two or three percent real? Um, and I think that's a big adjustment that we're all going to have to get used to there, too. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, just given what we've seen with the trade, with you know, the, just the, the trade policies and everything, I just think that China is not going to reinvest their treasuries. I don't think they're a seller. But I just don't think you can rely on them for that. And that's that's a trillion dollars, right? That it needs to come back in. Uh, again, it, it probably goes out in like five or six years. So, um, you know, it is a problem because, I, as you I, said, I, you're I, so that, reliant. That it's kind of says law. Like, oh, you're like, you know, su supply finds its own, you know, it, you know, its own supply. Like Italy always finances its budget deficit, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it, it, well, they, they got a product. They've, they've done great at marketing, man. We all love to go there. We love the food. You love the wine. I mean, it, it's fine. You know, they, they they have something for you, right? And they got some old buildings. Italy, not China. Um, the <laughs> but you know, remember, uh, so the environment where they would sell a trillion of treasuries, I think, would be an environment where you and others would be desperately securing and wishing to buy those treasuries. They would only be buying those treasuries in a profound deflationary unwind of their economy. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, otherwise... no, I think so. And that's and that's something that's got to be on your radar at this point, too. 
um, that they, they are struggling. They, they've blown their own bubbles, as you mentioned, with the property sector. It's, it's in the tapes today on that. And people have been worried about that for a long time. And, you know, there's a global housing problem, too. Right. Most countries, you know, you, you don't get a fixed rate mortgage like here in the U.S. And so they're highly sensitive to these interest rate environments. And so, um, you know, people just you know go back and think about putting cap rates on commercial real estate like three and a half percent two years ago. And now bills yield four and a half. Right. So if you think about that, there has to be some unwind in that system, too. So I, I, it doesn't sound like um, I mean, there will be with within your um you know, when you're kind of having these challenging investment kind of, you know, uh, forming narratives, um, it still sounds as if, and it's unjustifiable that you would be pretty much looking at the domestic pool and consumption and whatever. You you wouldn't really be looking at these external factors. No, not as much. And I mean, look, the, the right now, the dollar is a great place to be, right? Forget the, the dollar itself. I'm just saying dollar denominated assets are what, what you want to own. They have high carry. Um, you know, they're analyzable still. And at the end of the day, as much as it irks me to say this, we can print the money, right? We can finance it, right? Um, we've got a mechanism to do so. So, um, you know, I just think that if, you, if, you're a, if you're a dollar-based investor right now, you're going to want to load the boat up on non-dollar assets, but I think it's just too early. I think it's too early at this point in the cycle. I think you need us to go into a recession. When the U.S. goes into a recession, I think that's when you want to reload on the other side. But I think until that point in time, I, I, I could easily see another blow off in the top in the dollar. Um, just if we have, you know, kind of that recession, the flight to quality brings money here and, and it gets patriot, repatriated back to the U.S. And so um, I, I just think it's early to load up on the non-dollar trade. Uh, but I think you, you want to be circling it. You want to be looking at it uh, and you got to pick your spot. But I think you gotta, you're going to have to wait until, you know, we're kind of mired in that recession. And that's when you want to do that rotation. The U.S. is the lodestar. Inflation has to has to come off U.S. first because it's being yeah. amplified by by currency weakness. Well, we we did it the most. I mean, look, our M two growth was like twenty five percent back in in, in early twenty twenty one, right? So we printed all kinds of money, right? It just it's got to work its way through the system. And I think that's what you're seeing, and some of that is through deleveraging too. That's going to be the erosion of that money. Um, but that's exactly what's happened. But Seeing M2 growth go negative for the last few months, that is very concerning. That's very concerning. I, I refuse to talk about it, M2. Okay. Sorry. I don't, I don't want to I don't want you to have a bad day, Hugh. I don't no, want no, you dude. to have it. But, no, but hey, I've had a great time on this conversation. This has been great. Um, you know, uh, I I just love to to talk to smart people, as as you said, and and just chatting with you. It's been a it's been a pleasure today. Well, you've been very, very generous with your time. And um... Jeffrey, before you go, I always get asked this on WhatsApp to ask people, what's a book out there for people who are into investing? What book would you recommend they read to people that are, you know, maybe not complete rookies, but they're not professionals like Hugh and Hugh, uh, like you and Hugh, sorry. People are always asking, what do you recommend? Yeah, my favorite book to recommend is called Against the Gods. And uh, it was written by, I believe it's Bernstein, right? Um, and it's just, it's it's talking about risk-taking and how people, when they didn't understand it, the first thing they always blamed was their deities, right? The deities were the problem because they didn't understand something. So if you have a bad storm or something, it's the God's fault. And so I think anybody that wants to get into this business needs to understand the risk component of things. And I think he does an excellent job of, of laying that out. So called against the gods i think the subtitle is like something about a tale about risk or something like that yeah brilliant brilliant 
All right, well, we'll we'll get people on that then. We'll get uh, Hugh. Have you read that? Yep. Okay, there we go. Take for Hugh. Yeah, take for it's Hugh. A classic. Yeah. Yeah, take for Hugh. He's uh, he's edging closer to getting a job offer at Double Line. He meets the he meets the requirements, and his powerpoints are on point as well. There's no mistakes, no spelling mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So so thanks again, Chris. Hugh, it was a pleasure. Uh, let's do it again sometime, and uh, I look forward to the next discussion. Jeffrey, keep licking the honey from the razor's head. <laughs> and oh, everyone else, listen to The Sherman Show with yeah. Jeffrey Sherman. You can find it online. Check him out, everybody. Thank you, Jeffrey. Right. Thanks, everyone. Okay, bye for now. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2022, DoubleLine Capital.